The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, please make yourself at home. To listen to this interview in its entirety and all of our material, just go to VeritasRadio.com and subscribe. And for MMS and our new organic sulfur, visit the Veritas store. And tonight, we discuss the big picture with our special guest, George Green. George Green majored in geophysics at Colorado School of Mines and Law and Business at the University of Illinois. He's a former investment banker, registered financial principal with the NASD, and a broker and dealer. Securities underwriter, real estate developer, insurance broker, and publisher. A frequent guest on radio and TV talk shows. He's an expert in UFO phenomena, investigation, and making contact. He has had contact with ETs and shares their message in a book they authored called The Handbook for the New Paradigm. Mr. Green has information on how this planet began, how the so-called elite have plans for World War III, the reduction of population, and the Plan 2000, which is in motion as part of the political agenda today. And to learn more about George Green and his work, visit his website at nohoax. Dot com at N-O-H-O-A-X dot com, which is also linked at ours. And directly from somewhere in the state of Montana or Idaho. I'm not sure which one he is today, but I would like to welcome George Green. Hello, George, and welcome to Veritas. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. And uh, today you had some uh, some issues going from point A to point B, which I think uh, serves to give the perspective to our listeners and before we start with with uh, your story and 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 the big picture, but you had some issues going from point A to point B today that that could be a sign of things to come when things fail. Can you talk about that? Well, uh, you know, my car actually uh, registered I had gas in it, but it didn't have any, and I was on the interstate in an area where there's like fifty miles between gas stations. Anyway, I pulled out in the middle of nowhere, you know, obviously pulled off the road and it went dead and I didn't had no idea, you know, it said that. Anyway, I got to the position of, uh, I knew I was about two miles away from a, what they call it, uh, where you pull your cars off and everybody meets, you know, to go to the restrooms. Anyway, I, I made it to there because I did, I said, no big deal, except for my, my car was not registering correct. Anyway, I got there and the payphones don't work because they've disconnected those all over the place, too. 
So I ended up uh, talking to this couple, and they took me on down to where there was a phone station that was another 12 miles. And I know I ended up um, having them taking me back, you know, the phone station take me back up and get the car going. But it reminded me of all the other things because I was talking to the people down there that, frankly, uh, listened to the type of stuff that we are talking about right now, and they knew all about, or they knew as much as they could about what's going on 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 the planet, and they were concerned at the same way because many things are in motion right now. Now I was in Montana, Montana on on the television. They were announcing the other day they're looking for people to man the FEMA camps. In other words, they're going to get people to get ready to work on the FEMA camps. Now the FEMA camps were previously called prisoner of war camps, which I have a copy of it because they asked me to build one. Then the next thing they come down, this is the TV station again. The next thing they said, they put a big deal. They remind everybody between 18 and 25, they have to go register for the draft. Now, I don't know if you've heard this or not, but that's a big clue to me anyway, because I was involved with the meetings before on their plans to get World War III started. And getting the people going. Now, we have people, as you know, the United States has people all over the world. We don't have a lot of them here. They're all in other countries, which puts us in the position of basically being taken over. Well, the other problem with it is the distribution of, of fuel, per se, and they're changing all the cars and they're changing all kinds of stuff. And all the things they're designing for people's so-called comfort is just making them ignore everything that's coming around. And frankly, they need to be awakened to what's coming down real fast right now. Now, I'm I'm having meetings uh, tomorrow, for instance, with some of our state representatives because uh, they, they're they sitting down here representing or trying to get the stuff out, understanding even in the state itself, it's controlled by a few people. And so they're trying to figure out how to get around that. It's like our Congress. How many people in there really think like you and I do? Most of the rest of them are bought and paid for by some major corporation. And anybody who's new, anybody who's elected is usually subverted or destroyed. So it's only a matter of time before they they uh, get into the fold. But we before we start talking about the big picture once again, a lot of people who listen to, to, to this show know who you are. But there are some who, who don't know. I have a financial background, and I'm always – it's a pleasure to talk to some to people like you who have a, a, you know, a lot of knowledge about geopolitics and the economy and so on. But I'm always curious to know, how does a successful investment banker immersed in the financial world all of a sudden gets to discuss the ET phenomenon? Well, the, you have to look at my over – these are things where I did not know from that situation – because while I was uh, before I got involved in the big game of Monopoly, um, I was in the Air Force, and I happened to be assigned at Edwards Air Force Base, which, for your listeners, that's the Air Force Research and Development Center. And I got to work on all the super secret, brand new things that were at that time available uh, that they were working on, whether they wanted to, you know, have them in the public's eye. Uh, for instance, uh, uh, one morning, I was assigned to do the post-flight inspection on the X-15. That's the forerunner of the space shuttle. Anyway, it lands out in the desert. Uh, it, it's basically a, a rocket on skids. It has just a couple wheels for guidance at the other end, but basically it's just a big sled. Anyway, it landed, but it's about five miles north of the main base. Now, Edwards is nothing more than a big desert. I mean, you have, you know, uh, concrete runways, but the desert was used for landing like the X-15. Well, when I got out there, it was 10 o'clock in the morning. It was the last week in August. I'll never forget it because this changed my life in, in some ways. 
when I finished doing it, uh, at 10 o'clock, the temperature was 100 degrees because, you know, it's a top in the desert. Yeah. Uh, we, they don't let you work when it's over 100, 100 degrees out there. And I had my Jeep. My problem is that I had to put 25 miles a day on the Jeep, which was generally not a problem. But what happened is with that, with that programming as such, uh, I, I was didn't have anything better to do, and there was a couple of hangars I hadn't been to. So what I did was uh, take my Jeep, and I went out to this hangar, and I goes inside, and there's this big circular craft. Now, I, you know, it's round. I'm 10 feet away from it, Mel. I don't have any problem with looking. I said, well, this is unusual, but I didn't, you know, I worked on a bunch of strange-looking things. Uh, and the first thing I did was... When can I work on that round craft? You know, I, lost you, I lost you for about five seconds there when you started giving details. Can you repeat that, please? Sure. When I went out and uh, into this hangar, I'm looking at this round craft, and I said, it's very unusual, but I'm 10 feet away from it. So when I came back into um, my, you know, the squadron, I talked to my commander. I said, when can I work on that round craft? I mean, I've been working all <laughs> on all this other top secret yeah. stuff. And he said, you saw that? And I said, yeah. He says, that's an ion-powered craft designed by Sikorsky for use in outer space. I said, so? And he says, well, it's still a civilian project, and that's what Edwards is primarily at that time. It's mostly civilian contractors to build the vehicles. Anyway, and remember, you're talking about an ion-powered craft for use in outer space. Now, this happened the last week in August of 1958. Now, go back and think about that. They're talking about this type of equipment at that time, right? Imagine what we have now. Yeah, basically. And I'm sitting here, sitting here looking at it, and I says, "Well, great. When can I work on it?" And he says, "You can't. It's still a civilian project." Well, this is one of the, as you say, coincidences, Mel. I uh, went back and I talked to my buddy. It's ten in the morning. I said, "Let's go have lunch." And I says, uh, "Get me some pictures of the the round craft." And he says, "What did they tell you?" And I told him, and he said, that's not true. And, he, and then he says, come on with me. So we went over to the lab, and he showed me pictures of the craft. And I'm, again, I'm looking at it. The two dead aliens got my attention. And that really upset me because I was cleared for top secret. So I was mad. And now me, I'm one of these people who want to find out the truth. So I headed off back down to my commander, and I asked him. And, of course, his first hour, he debriefed me. Uh, on all the implications of a top-secret clearance. And it, we, we joked about it because my family had money. The, it was a $10,000 fine, yeah, but the jail time bothered me. And I said, hey, don't worry about it. I won't say another thing because that was the end of me, right? Yeah. So anyway, uh, another week, I mean, about a month went by, and they transferred me off the base. So I got to play the game running around the Air Force. They reassigned me in different places, finally send me up uh, – working on the Hound Dog nuclear missile, which is the first nuclear missile dropped from the B-52. So I got involved for two years. I was a guidance technician for that. But for, forgive me for interrupting the, the two aliens. You didn't, you didn't give any details about that. Can you tell us about that? And, and was, did they belong to that craft? And in essence, was it ours really, or was it captured or reverse engineered? No, it was the E.T. craft that had crashed. Mm. It's one of the ones like the, the Roswell incident, yeah. you know, the little grays. That's what it was. And so uh, if I, I found out later that our government had made some deals with them, and that's part of the base that we the E.T.s have right now in Dulce, New Mexico. 
and they have it today. I mean, if your people go down there and look at all the fences around, that's where it is. And the ETs have their. If you have your car parked at night, you can see them coming in every night. That's just today. So the two aliens, you saw them, or do you show photographs? Oh, I just saw the photographs. I didn't see the aliens. I, I mm. just saw the photographs. But it made me mad because then when I asked the commander about it, you know, uh, he just said, when the government's ready to tell the truth about UFOs and ETs, they will. And so basically stick to the story I gave you, that, you know, that it was an iron-powered craft. Play ball. Well, that's, yeah, just play ball. So I didn't say anything about it. In 1984, I built a house in Aspen. And my housekeeper happened to have a book called UFO Contact from the Pleiades. Incredible color photographs of exactly the same thing I saw at Edwards. That got my attention. So I flew down to Phoenix, and I talked to this couple who said they were investigating a man in Switzerland who claimed to be in contact with beings from the star system, the Pleiades, who said that they engineered, yeah, they said they engineered this planet for 500 million people. Well, I've got to digress a minute. When they asked me to be the finance chairman for the next president of the United States, I sat in on meetings where they want to reduce the world's population to 500 million. It, it's challenging to put together all the pieces. The ETs say, because uh, I'm, I'm talking to them like you and I are talking, they say I've been well-trained. In other words, I've been put in position so I could be consciously aware of what's going on and how the what we call the world plan is going into effect. I want you to take us back to that moment. I think this is a pivotal story for the listeners to, to know, for those who don't know. But... Um, you were, I remember the story. Why didn't you tell us you met with Ted Kennedy and they were going to offer you the chairmanship of, uh, for, for President Carter? Well, well let, let's, let's clarify it to give you an idea. Yes. Um, I, I took my daughters with me. We were going up to Aspen so they could go skiing. And I walked in to this room at the meeting and I'm looking around. I had the world leaders in the room and I said, what am I here for? And they say, we would like you to be the financier for the next president. I said, why me? And they said, we owe you a favor. Prior to that, I would volunteer to act as president of the companies, and I'd go in and decide whether I want to liquidate it or you know, put money in to keep them going. In other words, uh, kind of an overview, if you could put yourself at being an executive per se. Like a trustee? But I, did it as, it, I never charged them. I just went ahead and did it, you understand? Mm -hmm. uh, and I only charged them if, if we made a profit in the transaction. If it doesn't do any good, you know, I look at a company that's going to be dead, I might as well close the thing down. So anyway, when I walked into this, that, that question, we owe you a favor. That was part of the game because I was, you know, making them some money. And I said, well, who's going to be the next president? And they said, Jimmy Carter. And I said, Jimmy who? And they said, well, he's the Democratic governor of Georgia. And I said, but I've been voting Republican. And Paul Volcker speaks up. Don't worry about it, son. We control them both. Well, I knew that. Actually, he and I flew back to Denver on the same plane. And, you know, I told him he was the most powerful man in the world. And he reminded me, no, he's just a front man. Anyway, the meeting went on to the next step is, I says, my question is now, what does the finance chairman do? And I said, I just started this $100 million project. And they said, don't worry about it. We'll put it on ice. In other words, warehouse it. And then, then I said, well, what does it do? And then they said, we'll sit down with Ted. So I'm with Ted Kennedy. And Ted says, George, you're going to love this job. He says, we're going to send you out to all the state Democratic functions. And you're going to meet some real foxy ladies. And just then, I mean, another one of these coincidences? Yes, right. My daughter walks in. Ted looks at her and he goes, wow, I got to go to bed with that. And I said, no, you don't, Ted. That's my daughter. And she's 14. And his response was, I don't care. I was livid. I didn't, you know, I'm sitting, you know, two feet from him. 
I just got up, didn't say another word. I walked across the room. I'm talking to Pierre Trudeau and his wife. At that time, he was the prime minister of Canada. Canada. Anyway, I'm talking to him just to get my head level. I'm looking back, and I knew how the Kennedys were, and I know how a lot of the politicians are, frankly. But I, you know, I laid the boundaries out for him. Well, anyway, I'm talking to Pierre, and all, and his wife's sitting there next to him. There's a little half cigar box full of white powder. And I'm looking around the room, and I said, it's something to do myself. If the world leaders have to resort to this, I don't know if I want to be part of it. So anyway, over the weekend, this is on a Friday meeting, I, I said I'd let you guys know on Monday. Over the weekend, i got to set in on all the meetings what they have planned for the United States, and we're basically going to be gone. So that's that's the ultimate game. The Plan 2000 calls for the, uh, the war to get started in the year 2000. Jimmy Carter had a – believe it or not, there's uh, – a monument in in Georgia where Jimmy came from. They call it Georgia Guidestones. Just look it up on the internet. They tell you exactly what happened at the meeting. But mm-hmm. they're behind schedule. That's all. Who do you think put those stones there? Well, I heard. I don't know. I when I was down in Atlanta, I was speaking down there with David Ike, and we were discussing that same thing. And some people came up and said they just did it in secret behind. They don't want anybody to know about it. But you know, again, that was. Yeah, I have to look at it. Uh, Carter was from Georgia, and that's where the Georgia Guidestones are. And that Guidestones are basically what the Plan 2000 was all about. And the Plan 2000 calls for, this is population reduction of the entire planet. And they want to get the war started in the Middle East. That's to follow the biblical prophecies. This this thing is so orchestrated over you know a long time. Uh, you're talking about different years in order to get to the level of making it so that their plan comes to fruition. And I keep watching what's going on because as I'm running around the world, and I, you know, I had, I owned a coffee farm in Costa Rica, and I got it from Rodrigo Odio, which was the president of Costa Rica, and they had meeting of all the presidents of Latin America. And I was the only American there. I sat in on a meeting. They all know what's going on. They know that they're being puppets at the game because it's been controlled by the guys behind the Federal Reserve, which controls most of Europe. The only the wild cards in the game is China. Well, you know, I was in Beijing just not too far, you know, too long ago. And in Beijing, uh, I'm sitting with the leaders over there, and they said it's 5,000 years. It's our turn to run the world. So you think they're next? Uh, that's what's planned. I mean, I said, well, they're basically control the United States. I mean, we borrowed all the money from them. We're getting all the technology, everything else. Well, they're already overtaking us economy-wise. That's, you know, that's something I've well, been they, saying they for... they control everything. Yeah. I mean, they just, you look at everything that they have, they have their people over here spending the dollars and obtaining all of the natural resources. You know, they, they have the second largest oil company in Canada. They're buying up, well, in Ecuador, they're loaning money down there for them. They give it them a couple billion you know, a billion here and a billion there of dollars. Well, the meetings between, uh, you know, Putin and the guys in China right now, they're going to have their new currency. Now they're trying to get this done in the next six weeks. Six weeks. Yeah, we're not talking about a long time ago. The plan is they want to have it done. That's the reason why you keep watching the game. I watch the game of, you know, as you know, I was a registered financial principal Mm -hmm. and an underwriter in the securities. And the reason I got to that, I, I don't know if I've shared this with you before, but my my dad was uh, the third largest meat packer in Denver. 
And one of the problems in the meat business is the packers and stockyards. If I go out and buy a thousand head of cattle, I got to buy them from the farmer. I got to pay for it in 24 hours. If I processed the animal and I turn around and sold it to the government, they would pay me in two or three months. So I had a lot of what I call factoring of the or accounts receivable financing on our receivables, yep. and I was dealing back in the days where banks had loan limits, you know, to each of the individuals. You don't see factoring that much these days, do you? No, no. They, they, things are. Thank you for listening. To unlock the full two-hour interview, including video formats, downloads, transcripts, exclusive articles, and more, subscribe to Veritas Plus now. Gain access to our entire archive dating back to 2008. Just click subscribe at veritasradio.com. Because you don't want to believe, you want to know. Subscribe now. To listen to the rest and all of our exclusive material, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or join the Veritas Plus family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for focused life force energy. Get a 15-day free trial today with no credit card required. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button on our website at veritasradio.com. Now, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or subscribe to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it because you don't want to believe. You want to know. What are you waiting for? Subscribe now at veritasradio.com.